We're reading this morning from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 through 33. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave herself, himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this morning, I would like to start right away with a bit of time in prayer. We very typically uh, pray as we ready ourselves to hear God's word. Oh, my goodness. I think I had one of those mornings where you pull the top off of your, uh, off of your, uh, off of your music stand there. So we very typically pray as we ready ourselves uh, to hear God's word in a sermon, and it's always important, but in a text like this, where I think we all might be bringing in a couple extra pounds of baggage, I want to make sure that we don't rush. So I'd love to invite you to bow your heads with me now and pray with me for yourself, for those around you. And for me as I preach, and for my music stand. If you could also pray for my music stand this morning. Uh, I'll guide our time as we go so you can just listen and pray along with me. So let's bow our heads and hearts before the Father. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and we're preparing to pray and you've heard this passage misused and mistaught and you're not even sure that you want to stay after you heard the scripture reading. Maybe you're here this morning and we're preparing to pray and you're eager to hear what the Bible says about marriage. Maybe you find yourself this morning in a great, healthy marriage. Maybe you find yourself in a marriage that you're profoundly disappointed in. You feel like you're barely hanging on. Maybe you've experienced abuse in marriage or the pain of betrayal or divorce. Or maybe your story this morning is that you've experienced the unspeakable pain of the death of a spouse. 
Still others here this morning I know have longed for marriage and have never found it. And still others I know this morning are content in their singleness. And some I know in the room with us this morning are children or students and marriage seems so far off in the future. Like, will that even really happen for me? Wherever we find ourselves, whatever story we're living in the midst of related to marriage this morning, take just a moment of silence and release anything that you're holding too tightly or anything that is burdening you. God, you see us. Father in heaven, you know us. You love us. You are for us. And help us now here in these moments to remember those truths and to rest in those truths. Help us to lay down and surrender whatever baggage we might be carrying in so that we can experience you in full this morning in your word. And I pray that I would diminish as you increase in this sermon and that we would come to know and understand what it is that you have for us. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Well, here's a reminder that I often need in my own life about the Bible. Ultimately, it's always good news. Ultimately, the Bible is always good news. Now, we believe this because we believe that ultimately the Bible has Jesus Christ at its center. Every story whispers his name, as Sally Lloyd-Jones so eloquently penned in the Jesus Storybook Bible. But sometimes, and maybe you've experienced this with me, the whispers... Every story whispers his name, but the whispers can be a touch faint. They can be a touch difficult to hear, if you know what I mean. In other words, there are certain passages of the Bible where we might have to do a bit more work to uncover the ultimate good news that exists, not because it isn't there, not at all, but because our own cultural lens and or distance from the original context can add a bit more static to the broadcast, so to speak. You know what I mean? Static to the broadcast. And when we experience static on the broadcast of our televisions, what do we tend to do? Static is annoying, right? You're trying to watch the football game. You're trying to, to, to see the Chiefs. Static comes in. What do you want to do? You want to change the channel. It's frustrating when we experience static on the broadcast. But friends, we have to know that this, this morning, is not static on our television sets. What we are handling here as we gather for worship each and every Sunday morning is the perfect and inerrant word of God. So please, I urge us for our own good, let's not change the channel on this passage. Instead, let's stay tethered to this passage, and let's stay tethered to God and to one another, and let's go on a journey to get together to discover God's good news. Now, by the end of today's sermon, I can promise you that we will not have every question answered, and I can also promise you that we will not uh, necessarily be resolved in feeling no tension whatsoever around these matters. But church, tension is not always bad. Think of it, right? To have a real genuine relationship with another person means that they sometimes have to be able to say things to us that we don't want to hear, things that sometimes might cause a bit of tension within us. And if this is true in our human relationships, then how much more with the perfect God of the universe? Friends, if God himself can't tell us things that might initially sound strange or make us uncomfortable, then we just end up making him in our own image as opposed to the other way around. 
And when we form God in our own image, then we have no chance of really knowing Him in a genuine relationship. So tension from God's Word is not always a bad thing. And we shouldn't miss as well that this is not just true for us. We are God's people gathered here together to hear His Word. But for God with His people, this reality of, of tension has always been true. In other words, as we turn back to Ephesians 5 specifically, what Paul writes here in this passage on the topic of marriage was just as surprising and challenging to his original listeners as it might be for us. Don't miss that. It was just as surprising then as it is now. Just as surprising then as it is now. And that's because no matter what space or time we find ourselves in, the truth is that Jesus always turns marriage on its head. Jesus always turns marriage on its head. No matter whether it's first century Ephesus or 21st century Shawnee, Jesus is not interested in the status quo. Jesus is not interested in how everyone else does it. Rather, Jesus invites us to unlearn our shallow and broken ways so that we can then relearn and begin to walk out his better and more beautiful ways. And church, the first way that I think we see Jesus turning marriage on its head in Ephesians 5 is this. True Christian marriage is subversive. True Christian marriage is subversive. Now, to subvert something means to upend the status quo, to upend the status quo. And in ancient Ephesus, the status quo was an extraordinarily male-dominated, patriarch-centered vision for marriage. You might remember that a couple of Sundays ago, we moved a couple of sermons around, we went out of order, and we covered Ephesians 6, verses 1 through 4, which is the Apostle Paul's teaching directed at parents and children. In that sermon, we discussed how Ephesians 5.22, which we find in this morning's passage, how it actually begins a section of the letter to the Ephesians that is called a household code, a household code. And this was a common literary form in that cultural moment which is part of why Paul chooses to utilize this common literary form because his readers and listeners would have been familiar with it. But even as he chooses to utilize something that would have been familiar, he actually flips it upside down. He subverts it with the radical insistence that the patriarch is not in charge of the family. God is. That's how Paul subverts the household codes. The patriarch is not in charge of the family. God is. God is ultimately in control, not the father as we discussed a couple of weeks ago in the passage related to parenting and children. And here in this passage, God is in control, not the husbands. You'll notice with me as we read back through the passage this morning, as we read back through the passage this morning in a couple of seconds, verses 22 through 27, you'll notice, I'm sure you did, that the wife is directly addressed first. The wife is directly addressed first. And we may read that and, and sort of go, ah, Paul, he's just being so hard on the wives, right? He starts with them. But what he's actually doing, you have to understand, in the typical household codes of the days, the wives are not even addressed at all. So by speaking directly to the wives in this household code, Paul is affording wives, just as he did children, unprecedented dignity. Would not have happened in the typical household codes of the day. And notice with me as well, you will, I think, as we read back through, that Paul's focus in these verses are far more on his call and command to husbands. Just a sheer word count helps us prove the point. In the totality of this passage, Paul dedicates 55 words toward the wives, 110 words toward the husbands, and 62 words for marriage more broadly. Now, word count is not everything, of course, but it's not nothing either, right? 
So with all this in mind, let's take another look at verses 22 through 27. Let's see together how true Christian marriage is subversive. That passage begins again. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. But husbands, verse 25, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and blemished and without blemish. Now, as we read through those verses, as we read through those verses, I highlighted two of the most vital words in the passage, submit and love. Submit and love. And pastor and Bible scholar Tim Mackey offers some helpful definitions for these words that I think hopefully can get us all on the same page. Here's what he, how he defines love and submit. Love, he says, is a commitment to act for the well-being of another. I think that word commitment's really important there, right? Oftentimes we can read love just as an emotion, just as a feeling, but he defines it in helpfully as a commitment. Love is a commitment to act for the well-being of another, while submit means to prioritize the interests and well-being of others above your own. Notice how the well-being of others is central to both words here, love and submit. And friends, as we dive more into these words, the very first thing that I want us to see about both of them both submission and love, is that they are vital for everyone in the body of Christ. Everyone in the body of Christ. Yes, it's true that in this passage about marriage, Paul points submission specifically towards wives and love specifically towards husbands. But, but let's zoom out for a moment to the broader context of the whole of this chapter, which is why we had Mary Kay read a few verses before we dove into verse 22. In fact, I'm going to back up even a little farther, and I'm going to put some verses from even earlier in Ephesians chapter 5 on the screen. Verses 1 and 2 of Ephesians 5 and verses 18 and 21. Let's see the broader context of the passage that we're studying this morning. Ephesians 5, 1 through 2 says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. And jump down to verse 18 where Mary Kay started our scripture reading this morning. Be filled with the Spirit submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Church, do you see it? Before Paul transitions into the household codes, before Paul transitions to speaking specifically to husbands and wives about marriage, he names quite clearly in the broader context of just the same chapter that sacrificial love and mutual submission is vital for all followers of Jesus. Do you hear? Do you understand? Do you see? Listen, no matter who you are, in the body of Christ, your call and command is to sacrificially love and mutually submit. And we have to be honest too, right? Do you know what's hard? Sacrificial love. Do you know what else is hard? Mutual submission. Both of these calls and commands from Paul are difficult, which is why the context from verse 18 is so important. I have the idea of submission highlighted on the screen, but look at the command. The command is actually not to submit. The command is to do what? The command is to be filled with the Spirit, the Spirit of God himself, right, dwelling within each one of us as individuals and as a community more, more broadly. How is sacrificial love, the love of Jesus, possible in our community? 
How is it possible in your life? How is submission, how is mutual submission possible in our community? How is it possible in your life? By way of our obedience to the command to be filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit within us makes both of these hard calls, both of these hard things possible. Sacrificial love and mutual submission. Everyone, no matter who we are, is called into this work of sacrificial love and mutual submission. Now, within the verses addressed to the wives in the household code portion of this chapter, Paul does weave back in a metaphor that he's used quite a bit, uh, often prior in the letter to the Ephesians. And you, you saw it, I'm sure. He talks about the head and he talks about the body. So I have those verses back on the screen for us now with these words highlighted. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. But church, the key point comes from as we follow forward into the rest of Paul's teaching where he specifically addresses the husbands and what we see, and this is again the key point, is that he transforms the metaphor by what he calls the head, the husbands, to do for the body, the wives. And again, this is metaphorical language from Paul. But we see clearly how he transforms this metaphor even from just Verse 25, a few words into his address to the husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. We can't miss it. Instead of the body serving and sacrificing for the head, which was the status quo, it's the way we expect this metaphor to go, the body serves the head, Paul flips it. The head is called to serve and sacrifice for the body. He's here is scholar Michelle Lee Barnwell on this point to help us. She writes, the fundamental nature of the reversal of this metaphor is critical. It would have struck Paul's audience not only as odd, but even more so as against nature. The sacrifice of the head would have been suicidal for the entire body, end quote. I mean, think of it with me, right? If you're being attacked, and let's pray that we're not, but if we are being physically attacked, what do we do? What part of the body do we protect first? Our heads, right? We sort of cower and cover and protect our heads. But, but within the context of this metaphor, Paul reverses it. Instead, he subversively flips it upside down and he puts an incredibly fine point on it, right? He says, husbands, you are the head. But are you ready to die for your wife, the body? Friends, true Christian marriage is subversive. It's subversive. It's not the status quo. And isn't this so classically the way of Jesus too? Isn't this so classically the way of Jesus? Think back with me to his words in Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man came not to, serve, to be served, but to serve. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the patterning of Jesus. This is the way of Jesus. Submission, not domination. Sacrificial love, not selfishness. Subversive, not status quo. This is the patterning of the way of Jesus. True Christian marriage is subversive. Now, I do think it's a fair question to wonder why Paul chooses to point wives specifically towards submission and husbands specifically towards sacrificial love. 
If both commands are important for both parties, why did he choose to do it this way in these verses? Which is a really good question. And I think the reality is that we don't have a completely satisfying answer to the why of that question. Why? Why in this way in these verses? Now, for, for husbands, right, the call to sacrificially love their wives for husbands, in this day, in this moment, in this cultural uh, expression, wives were more property, less people. I think it's safe to say that in that cultural context, husbands were probably not great at sacrificially loving their wives at, as Jesus loved the church. But, but hold on, right? I mean, we have to ask, are husbands much better at this today? I just want to ask, myself, you all, right? Sacrificial love for the husbands. Now, for wives, I want to make sure we tread lightly. But I do wonder about a hint of a connection back to the middle of Genesis chapter 3. A difficult passage where God names a portion of what will happen in light of Adam and Eve's tragic rebellion. And there in Genesis 3.16, it says, directed toward Eve. And you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. And church, we have to hear, right? Genesis 3.16 is not God's design for marriage. It is not his intent for marriage or his heart for marriage. Rather, and I think we, we all know this, it is too often the broken reality of marriage given the fall, given our sin, given our rebellion. But keep that context in mind and weave back in Ephesians 5, what is possible in light of Jesus. Husbands ought not rule over their wives, but sacrificially love them instead. And wives ought not desire to control their husbands, but ought submit to them instead. And again, I'm stepping in here with great humility. The reality, again, is that there are times where God in His providential care leaves questions that we have packed with more mystery than we might like. More mystery. So the question becomes for us as we respond to that, how do we? How do we respond to the mystery within questions that we bring to a text or to God Himself? Will we rest in the fact that He is God and we are not? Or will we angrily shake our fists at Him, demanding more and more and more? Church, true Christian marriage is subversive. It was then and it is now. It was then and it is now. And here's just one thing I'm noticing in our cultural moment. Let's bring this forward. How this idea of true Christian marriage being subversive, how is it true now? How is Christian marriage different? How does it upend the status quo of marriage in our moment? Well, here's just one way I've noticed. Followers of Jesus still believe that marriage is a covenantal relationship, not a consumer one. Followers of Jesus believe that marriage is a covenantal relationship, not a consumer relationship. Track that with me, right? We know this. We've experienced this. In a consumer relationship, my needs are more important than the relationship. In a consumer relationship, my needs are more important ultimately than the relationship itself. Here's a simple example from the life of the Brandis family. We have a consumer relationship with Republic Trash Services. That's not bad, right? We, the Brandis family has a need for our trash to be picked up and taken away. It's a consumer relationship. We're in, I'm, I entered into a contract, right, with this company. What's most important in that relationship? Is it, the, is it the fact that I have a relationship there? Or are my needs, are our needs in that relationship more important? 
to consumer relationships, so our needs are more important. So if, like, for instance, in a hypothetical and not at all real scenario where our recycling bin went for over a month without getting picked up, what would we do? We would break that relationship and start a new one with KC Disposal. Like, you see that, right? Because our needs, our trash needs, are more important in the context of the consumer relationship than the relationship itself. I wish all the best for Republic Trash Services. We are no longer in a relationship with them. Do you see? That's a consumer relationship. It's not bad. We have them. They are good and right. But, but, but see this with me. Ponder this question with me. What happens if we approach relationships that are designed to be covenantal? What happens if we approach relationships that are designed and are supposed to be covenantal with a consumer mindset, with a consumer approach? The answer? Nothing good. Nothing good comes out of that. Here's the key difference in how Christian marriage is subversively designed to function. In a covenantal relationship like marriage, the relationship is more important than my needs. In a covenantal relationship like marriage, the relationship is more important than my needs. Now, this does not mean that your needs are unimportant or that there is no space left for proper self-care in a marriage or that a spouse could abuse you based on the fact, oh, well, you're, no, right? No, no, no. You're, like the relationship's more important. There's no space for any of that in true Christian marriage. Your needs do matter. Of course they still do. But in a covenantal relationship, the relationship is what we prioritize first. Your needs matter, and so do the needs of your spouse. And the design of true Christian marriage is that you both make a deep commitment to living sacrificially so that the needs of the other person are met. A deep commitment to sacrificial living so that the needs of the other person are met, which actually leads to our next key idea. True Christian marriage is subversive, but it's also sacrificial. True Christian marriage is sacrificial. And hopefully you're not going to be surprised by my insistence that the call to sacrifice in true Christian marriage is directed where? Towards both husbands and wives. This is what I think Ephesians 5 clearly teaches. There is no doubt that an invitation towards wives to submit will bring about great personal sacrifice. And there is no doubt that an invitation to husbands to love their wives as Jesus loved the church will also bring about great personal sacrifice, right? Submission denies the pull to relentlessly seek power, instead humbly gives it to someone else. And true love, Jesus-shaped love, denies the use of power for oneself, but instead lays it down and only uses it for the benefits of another, both of these commands from the Apostle Paul end up subverting the natural sinful pull of our hearts towards ourselves. Have you noticed that about your heart? The natural sinful pull of your heart is toward yourself, towards your needs, towards what you need. But the design of true Christian marriage is to subvert this, to, 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 to break in and, and break out. Both of these calls require great personal sacrifice. And you know what I've noticed that me, you, all of us tend to not like? Great personal sacrifice. 
We tend to sort of shy away from that. We tend to run from that. We tend to not often enjoy or pursue great personal sacrifice, I think because it feels so much like death. Great personal sacrifice feels quite a lot like death, doesn't it? One of my favorite sitcoms is Parks and Rec, and on this point, I couldn't help but think of Leslie Nope's classic line. She says, every time a couple gets married, two single people die, <laughs> right? Isn't that classic? Every time a couple gets married, two single people die. But the truth is that Leslie speaks here better than she knew. She, she makes this comment with derision in her voice. She's worried that she's going to functionally lose one of her best friends who's seriously dating another character on the show. But I actually think she said something truthful here. So let's grab this idea from Leslie. Let's amend it to fit our idea that true Christian marriage is sacrificial. Here it is. Every time a couple gets married, two single people should die. Every time a couple gets married, two single people should die. Die to themselves die to their desire for power, for control, for domination, should die to their selfishness. Listen, church, either you will kill your selfishness, die to it every day, or your selfishness will kill your marriage. Either you will kill your selfishness, you will choose to die to it every single day, or your selfishness will kill your marriage. You know, marriage has been marked by sacrifice, great sacrifice since the very beginning. Since the very first marriage, think back with me to Genesis chapter 2. God performed the first wedding ceremony at the end of that chapter. He unites Adam and Eve into a new one flesh creation. But church, how did God choose to create Eve? How did he choose to give her life in the verses before he weds her to Adam? Genesis 2 verses 21 and 22 remind us. Do you remember this? God chooses to pierce Adam's side in order to give life to Eve, Adam's then bride. Sacrifice, deep sacrifice. And friends, trust me, I know how scary this sounds. I know how hard it is to live this. Sacrifice is hard, and what is more terrifying than death? But can I remind us that followers of Jesus tell a different story about death? When we look at death through the lens of Jesus, we see something different. I'm not denying that death is scary. Death in any form is scary. But when we put on the glasses of Jesus and when we look through that lens at death, we see something different. We don't see an end. No, rather, we see only the beginning. So when we look at sacrifice and quote-unquote death in our marriages through the lens of Jesus, we shouldn't be terrified because it's not the end. The sacrifice of death in our marriage is the beginning of true Christian marriage as it was designed to be, as it ought to be. And church, herein lies the secret of true Christian marriage. Because maybe you've been sitting here getting a bit bummed out a bit discouraged by all this talk of sacrifice and death. Maybe you've been thinking, isn't marriage about love? Isn't it about joy? Isn't it about deep and abiding connection and relationship? To which I say, yes, 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 and yes. Listen, one of the greatest joys of my life is my marriage to my bride, Ashley. 
True Christian marriage is a gift. It is a great and glorious gift from a great and glorious God. But the strength of Ashley and I's marriage has grown and increased the more that we have made it not about us. Meaning, when I wake up in the morning and when I set my heart and when I set my choices and when I set my life on dying to myself so that I can sacrificially serve my wife, our marriage is off to a great start that day. And when my wife, Ashley, when she wakes up in the morning, when she sets her heart and sets her choices and sets her life on dying to herself to sacrificially serve me, then our marriage is off to a great start that morning. And furthermore, when the two of us are in agreement, when we look at each other and when we say, when we both wake up in the morning remembering that ultimately, ultimately our marriage is not an end to itself, then our marriage is off to a great start that day which is actually our final key idea this morning. True Christian marriage is subversive, it's sacrificial, and it's also a signpost. It's signpost. It's a signpost. And friends, what does a good sign do? A good sign points in the direction to something else. You know this. A sign is not an end to itself. A sign points somewhere else. So, so hear me. Track the connection with me. The point of your marriage is not your marriage. The point of your marriage is not your marriage. The point of your marriage is to point to something else. The point of your marriage is to point to someone else. See the Apostle Paul on this at the end of our passage. Wrapping up the discussion about human marriage, he's addressed wives, he's addressed husbands, and he writes this in Ephesians 5.32, This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. To Christ and the church. In other words, true Christian marriage is a signpost that points to the ultimate marriage between Jesus and his bride, the church. True Christian marriage is a signpost that points to the ultimate marriage between Jesus and his bride, the church. Which is beautiful, isn't it? Yes, there is great mystery in this reality, in this metaphor. Paul admits as much in this verse, but step back with me and admire the beauty of this metaphor. For what marriage is more sacrificial than the one between Jesus and his bride, the church? What marriage is more tender than the one between Jesus and his bride, the church? What marriage is more committed? What marriage is more loving than the one between Jesus and his bride, the church? None at all, friends. None at all. Now, at this juncture, there's a vital word to speak to our single brothers and sisters in the room. Because, yes, Paul is clear here in Ephesians 5.32 that true Christian marriage is a signpost and that it points to Jesus' marriage to his bride, the church. But to my single brothers and sisters, please hear the glorious good news that your singleness is a vital signpost as well. Your singleness is a vital signpost as well. Your singleness points to the truthful reality of Jesus' teaching in Matthew 22. We must remember this. Jesus says, he says that in the resurrection, in the new creation, we will neither marry nor be given in marriage. In the resurrection, in the new creation, we will neither marry nor be given in marriage. Church, did you know that? I'm married to Ashley now. In this chapter of God's story, but in the final chapter, in the new heavens and the new earth, I won't be married to Ashley because my marriage is a signpost. It is not an end 
unto itself. And so if you are single right now, then your life is a signpost that points to that coming reality. And we need that signpost. We can become so enmeshed and immersed in our human marriages here that we forget that our marriage is a signpost. And we need the reminder that one day we will not either marry nor be given in marriage. So if you are single here, your life and your singleness reminds us of heaven. And I need that. We all need that. So thank you. But whether we are here today married or single at this moment, see with me how all of this fits together. Because church, the truth is that no matter how great marriage is, it will never be enough to satisfy the deepest longings of our hearts. No matter how great marriage is, it will never be enough to satisfy the deepest longings of our hearts. And the reason why this is true, and we have to see this and we have to live this, is that a spouse can't be your savior. A spouse cannot be your savior. A spouse can only point you to the one who is your savior. A spouse can only point you toward the one who is your savior, your savior, Jesus, who is enough to satisfy the deepest longings of your hearts. Your Savior Jesus, whose side was pierced for his bride, sacrificing greatly so that she might have life. Jesus, who subverted everything we thought we knew about death by submitting himself to death and then defeating it. And Jesus, who promises. Right On a wedding day, what do couples do? They make vows to each other. They make promises to each other. And as he is about to depart from his disciples, right? what is the final vow and promise that Jesus makes? to them. In Matthew 28, he says, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you, but I will be with you to the very end of the age. And that is the vow and the promise that every single one of us needs. And that is a vow and a promise that as much as Ashley and I love one another, we could not make to one another. When we stood on our wedding day, December 12, 2009, when we turned to face one another for our vows, we couldn't make that vow. I will never leave you, I will never forsake you, but I will be with you always to the end of the day. We couldn't. Instead, we had to vow, and this was significant and meaningful, it's an important vow. We had to vow what? Until death do us part. Because the reality is, and no matter how long God sees fit for Ashley and I's marriage to exist in this moment, in this life, it will have an end. One day, either I will bury Ashley or she will bury me. Let's be honest. She's going to outlive me, right? But that's happening. That's coming. My marriage to Ashley will have an end. And I'm not happy about that. I'm not eager about that. I'm not glad about that, right? But if we remind ourselves of that, and we should, then we will think that's why we had to vow until death do us part. And then we will be freed and be reminded and, and be, be able to rest in the fact that there was one who was able to vow to us. It's not until death do us part. Jesus instead could say to me, could say to Ashley, could say to you, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will be with you always to the end of the age. And my marriage, if I remember that it is temporary, it points me to where? It should point all of us, all of our marriages should point all of us where? To Jesus. And that is always a good place to be pointed. Because when we trust in Jesus, not even death can separate us from his love. In Jesus, we are always loved. We are never abandoned. We are never forsaken. Friends, true Christian marriage is sacrificial, 
It's subversive, and it's a signpost, a signpost pointing us to Jesus. As I close our time together this morning, I'm eager to invite Tom and Kay Heathcote to the platform. Tom and Kay uh, have had a over 40-year marriage to one another, um, almost 40. When is it? June 4th of next year will be almost 40 years. Uh, and so I thought, you know, I could, uh, I could tell you how to apply this sermon or I could show you how to apply this sermon, right? Um, and so that's what we're doing here. We've got a couple microphones for them. And uh, I've asked them to prepare a couple of answers to questions here. And now we have to say two, right? Uh, Tom and Kay's marriage is not the example, not the example, <laughs> Right? But it is an example. Every marriage will be absolutely and uniquely different, beautifully so. But I'm eager to close our sermon this morning by trying to learn a little bit from them. So thanks for doing this with me. I really appreciate it. So June 4th is 40 years. Okay, so I I don't know why I want to do the math backwards. Is that 19... 1983. Okay, wonderful. And over those 40, almost 40 years, I want to ask, how has your understanding of marriage grown and changed throughout that time together? Go ahead. Well, um, in 1983, we did not have cell phones. <laughs> so Tom and I um, met in high school, so we were high school sweethearts, and we both went to college, different places. I went to Trinity for one year and then came back to Des Moines and went to nursing school, and he came to Kansas City, so that's how we ended up in Kansas City. So um, our three to four years of dating, were we were apart, and so... We did not have cell phones to talk to each other, and um, a lot of our um, courting was a long distance. We didn't get away because we had school year-round. And so um, my idea of marriage at that time was he was going to be my rescue, (laughs) and um, he was going to be my hero. And my life verse, even back then, was Psalms 37.4. And that is, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. And Tom was my desire. And so after we got married, I put a lot of pressure on him to be that hero instead of putting it to God. That God is my hero, and he is my delight. So um, I think that's what changed, and it has changed over the years that my heart's desire is Christ and not Tom to fulfill all those things. And that was a long journey. That was probably 20 years into our marriage that I finally decided God is who I desire, not just Tom. Thank you. Tom, anything on that? Well, I have some more to add when you ask the next Great. Okay, we'll go to it. (laughs) Awesome. What is something, and it is kind of related, what is something that you wish you'd known when you were first married? Um, there's a whole lot that's not in the brochure. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, there's a brochure? <laughs> well, you know, again, we make up this yes. ideal of yes. marriage. And, yes. you, know, like, you know, like Kay expressed, you know, Kay was going to be, you know, some combination of Wonder Woman, Super Wife, uh, you know, fulfill all of my needs, um, desires and all of that, and uh, the thing that I wish I had known um, 
is how much marriage was going to refine and expose me, mm. okay? Um, I didn't go into this marriage thinking that God was going to use this to refine and expose me, all of my faults, all of my everything. I mean, through this marriage, I have become who God wanted me to be. But it, it didn't start out that way. You know, I did a fair amount of the woman that you gave me, <laughs> you know, back to Adam, you know. <laughs> and what I, somewhere along the line, I figured out that God's idea of leadership, Kay's naturally submissive, and I naturally like to be in charge. So what, what could go wrong with that? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's going to be perfect, right? You know, I'll lead, she'll submit. Hey, life is great, but... God's idea of leadership, as we know, and as you said, is just completely different than that. And, you know, serving. And um, somewhere along the line, I figured out God expresses himself as a husband and a father a whole bunch. And as I started to look at less... <sighs> Kay's inability to fulfill my desires, I recognized that God, that Kay was God's provision for my needs and that if I was somehow not getting what I thought I needed, perhaps God was saying to me, well, you really don't need that, mm. you know, and that Kay is God's perfect provision for my needs. And as I started to look at God as a husband and a father, it kind of something went off in my head. It's like, hey, maybe the reason I feel distanced from God or distanced from Kay is because I'm not focusing on that role the way God focuses on that role or expresses himself. And again, that changed. Well, I think, time. yeah, and I think one of the most countercultural things I heard in that answer is when uh, a need in my life isn't being met, maybe God is inviting me to consider I don't actually need that, right? How much do we conflate something we want with something we need, and then we put that conflation upon and that burden on our spouse, right? Absolutely. And we often do so, and I, I mean, even just in 12, marriage, 12, 12 years of marriage to Ashley, trying to learn some of what you guys are articulating here, so... Um, one of the uh, sort of crucibles of formation for every marriage and every human relationship is how do you deal with conflict? So what has that looked like in the course of the almost 40 years together? What, is, what does it look like for you to handle conflict and deal with conflict in your marriage? So um, we are not perfect at this. <laughs> but somehow early on in our marriage, and I don't know if it was at a marriage conference or if it was just something we came up with ourselves, I don't remember, but we gave each other permission to, when we were having conflict, we tried to say, this is my feeling. Because hmm. feelings are feelings. You can't really change your feelings. Even if the person did something wrong, trying not to blame, put the blame like you always do this or you never do that. But that um, my feeling is this and deal with the feelings. Feelings come and go. So I think in conflict, lots of times we try to stop and say, this is what I'm feeling, and it might not be right or wrong, but this is how it is. Mm -hmm. So we're going to deal with this conflict in my feelings. 
that might not always be the best thing, but that's how we have kind of dealt with things over the years, is yeah. our feelings. And I will tell you, we're not 100% with that. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, facts and figures and evidence and, you know, why she's wrong or why I'm wrong doesn't change how you feel. Right. <laughs> it doesn't. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. The need to uh, own feelings, communicate feelings clearly, but no, it's really, really good. What's something that you want every married couple to know? Man, you know, again, it, when Paul asks us to do this, we're uh, 40 years plus another three and a half of courtship to distill down into, you know, the one thing, you know. I, I can't come up with a one thing, but I've got a couple three. <laughs> That's, That's fine. Okay. <laughs> that is allowed. So yes. you've already said it. And again, anything that we're saying here, you can find in print. <laughs> so... Um, your most important relationship next to God is your spouse if you are married. Um, there is no other more important relationship than that. Um, one thing we learned is, is that in raising our kids, what the Bible says has a whole lot more credibility with your kids when your marriage reflects what the Bible says. Mm. And Put it another way, if you want your kids to wait for marriage, then show them a marriage that is worth waiting for. That gives it so much more credibility than just God says you can't have sex till you're married. <laughs> you know? Um, find ways to minister together. We've been blessed that we've found a way to serve God in a way that we can work together to do that. And going on, you know, 38 years of uh, doing youth men and it's been great. And then finally, the one thing I want you to know is that there is no person on this earth I would rather spend time with than Kay Heathcote. We have become, we started out as friends, we became married, we <laughs> went through all of that, we raised children, and we've exited on the other side of all of that as best friends, and it's awesome. Kay, anything to add? No, I just... I agree with Tom. I think our, our friendship has even grown more than I could have ever expected. So the very first question, I don't think I knew I was going to have such a best friend at mm. the end of our marriage, you know, these four years. Mm. Wonderful. We're going to pray to close out here in a moment. Can we just give them a round of applause? <clears throat> yeah. well, let me close our time in prayer. Bow your heads with me. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the example here, again, not the example, but an example of true Christian marriage between Tom and Kay. And thank you for how their marriage points uh, to something beyond itself. Um, and you heard them uh, clearly articulate that, Lord, and we were blessed and benefited from their clear articulation that their marriage, just as every true Christian marriage ought to be a signpost that points to the ultimate marriage between Jesus Christ and his bride, the church. Uh, that's us. We get to be married to Jesus as the bride. Whether we are uh, in human marriages or whether we are single, uh, we get to be a bride together to your son Jesus. And we don't deserve that. And we're really grateful for it. So whether we are single, whether we are married, no matter what we are experiencing now in that part of our story, Lord, uh, may we remember that all of this is about pointing all of us more and more and more to your son Jesus. Uh, so may we anchor more deeply there, may we press more deeply into that relationship, and may we be most 
most grateful uh, and, and rest in the fact that we have him, that he is our husband and we are his bride. We pray all of this in his holy and precious name. Amen. Thank you guys so much.